Janet Forrest. Welcome to The Shelves of Yore. In this final episode of Season 2, Jim and I take a look at two women who were prolific writers and trailblazers for other women, but like so many of their peers, have been pretty much lost to history. I first took notice of Sarah Woolsey and Helen Hunt Jackson because I was looking for what kinds of juvenile literature was included in the Athenaeum's catalog of 1900. There were several volumes by Jackson and Woolsey, and in some cases, multiple copies. When I did a little more research, okay, when I typed their names into Google, I discovered that not only were they contemporaries of each other, they were in fact very close friends. How could these two wildly successful writers who moved in the same circles as Jane Austen and Emily Dickinson be completely lost to popular memory? That ends today. Jim and I are going to introduce you to each of these savvy women and talk about how their careers intersected. We'll also speculate on why their writings haven't stood the test of time. We start with Sarah Chauncey Woolsey. Sarah Chauncey Woolsey was born in 1835. She lived to 1905. And she came from a very wealthy and prestigious New England family that at the time was living in Ohio. So she was born in Cleveland. She had family connections to the Winthrops and also to three presidents at Yale University. The children themselves grew up on a very, very nice estate. There were several acres of it, and they were encouraged to pursue active lives outdoors. They were also very creative. Sarah herself, from a very early age, was writing stories and poems for her family. She was considered very athletic, very outgoing. She was a really considered to be a good student, but some people said that the things she excelled in, particularly literature and history, she accomplished more by sort of not paying a little bit less attention to the math and some of the other things she was required to do. But by about the mid-1850s, when she was about 20 years old, she at that point, she'd been educated not only in private schools in Cleveland, she also went to a boarding school in Hanover, New Hampshire, called Mrs. Hubbard's Boarding School for Young Women, which is right on the border of Dartmouth College. And the Dartmouth at that time, all male students referred to it as the nunnery because the women were kept under very, very tight control. After graduating, uh, as I said, Sarah and her family moved to New Haven, and that became her home for almost the next 20 years. During the Civil War, she uh, devoted herself to volunteering in the various military hospitals. She worked as a nurse and then worked her way up to help organizing the nursing service. She ended up serving as an assistant superintendent at General Hospital in Rhode Island itself. And in 1862, she would meet her, you know, the next woman we're going to talk to, which would be Helen Hunt Jackson. And they became very, very good friends at that moment. But she didn't actually begin writing until after the Civil War. And she developed a pseudonym uh, of Susan Coolidge. And at that point, she just began prolifically writing and publishing. She did everything, books, poems, and magazine articles. You know, she basically lived at home for most of her life. However, in 1870, after her father died, she spent two years abroad, chiefly in Italy, with her mother and her sisters, and with her friend, 
who will come in and later, Helen Hunt Jackson. So she, you know, she led a fairly active life. She certainly was not confined to her house. She also ranged widely in terms of her career. She was known popularly as a writer for, you know, as I said, stories for young people, particularly books for girls. Once she got going in 1871, she just kept publishing right up to about 1890, doing almost a new volume every year. And she really kind of caught the market at the time because her tales were very lively. Some of her characters were almost irreverent, but at the same time, they were considered sensible, wholesome, and pleasingly moral, but they weren't particularly preachy, which kind of differed a little bit from some of the other children's series. And talk about her most famous series, which is what Katie did, and it became a whole series. It did, and it's pretty much, it's almost autobiographical. Uh, It focuses on a young woman named Katie Carr and the Carr family, and their house was modeled on, on Sarah's family in Cleveland, as well as their estate in Cleveland. And Katie herself was, I think, what we would now call a tomboy. You know, she was casual about her clothing. Her stockings were constantly ripped. She'd be climbing around in trees, but eventually something would happen and she would have to settle down and channel her energies in, in a more positive way. They were set at a boarding school, which was based on, you know, her time at the Select Family School for Young Ladies. This is the one that's the one in Hanover. And interesting thing about this, this was a very select school. A brochure survives from 1861 and reveals that the school's fees were 50% higher than what they were charging at Dartmouth College at that time. This was not for the, you know, the average middle-class student. But Katie Carr was, you know, as I said, autobiographical, like the author. She was tall and someone said, quick-witted, impulsive, and full of imagination. And that's why they caught on. And they became, to your point, incredibly popular. What this reminds me of is Judy Bloom books, specifically Ramona. And we're going to talk about a different Ramona later. Yep. Just this idea of like girls being a little irreverent, but also being themselves and having a personality and mm-hmm. ha- having smarts and being curious and not being locked into a specific path. Right. And something we have to point out about both of these authors is that they definitely came from positions of privilege. And that didn't hurt. They never had to worry about, oh, is this going to affect me socially? Well, certainly in Sarah's case, you know, as long as they didn't go too far, they could pretty much do whatever they wanted to. She definitely took advantage of it. You know, while we remember her for her children's stories, uh, she was actually much more prolific than that. She edited collections of letters and correspondence. She wrote the introduction to the collected letters of Jane Austen. She was contributing to most of the major periodicals in America. During her lifetime, she wrote three volumes of poetry. Uh, She also wrote a short history of the city of Philadelphia. I'm not quite sure how that one happened. She also made occasional translations from the French, and perhaps more importantly, she acted as what was called a consulting reader for her publishers, which was Robert's Brothers at the time. I think we could sort of think of that as almost like a script doctor. Today, she would be someone they'd bring in to kind of take a look at a book and figure out how can we improve this, what's wrong with this, and, and that was sort of her ability. So she she made the transition from not just a writer, but also to an editor and someone who had some influence in terms of what works were actually going to be published. As Jim mentioned, Sarah had a fateful encounter with another young woman named Helen that would evolve into a lifelong friendship and camaraderie in the male-dominated publishing industry. But before we talk about their friendship, let's learn a little bit more about Helen Hunt Jackson, who was born Helen Maria Fisk. She lived from 1830 to about 1885. 
She's remembered today as being a poet, a writer, but also as an activist, which is a little different than, than her friend, Sarah. She was born to the Fisk family in Amherst, Massachusetts. She was the second of four children. Her father was Nathan Welby Fisk, who trained as a congregational minister, but ended up teaching moral philosophy, Latin and Greek at Amherst College. Interestingly enough, her mother, Deborah, was known as a writer of talent for children. She did write some children's books, but you know, on a much more modest level. The Fists themselves were staunch Calvinists. They tried very hard to provide their kids with a very moral and structured education. And from the very, very beginning, Helen was testing their limits on that. She was, by all accounts, just an absolute handful. At age eight, there's a story that she ran away with a playmate to a nearby town where they interrupt a funeral that was in session. A kind of search committee went and got her and she came back and she was like, oh, I just had so much fun. So they basically, the teacher suddenly, they punished her by locking her in the attic with a Bible. It didn't do much good. <laughs> also, at the same time, she had this gift for like recall and creative storytelling. And so her writing began really just as a record of her childhood. And she just kept writing every bit, very much as Sarah had done, who was writing for her family. I think in Helen's case, she was writing more for herself. Unfortunately, her life was marred with tragedy. Sarah's life was relatively smooth. Helen was almost completely the opposite. In 1844, her mother died of tuberculosis. In 1847, three years later, her father succumbed to the same disease. She was sent to Falmouth, Massachusetts to live with, an aunt, with one aunt while her sister, who was the only other surviving sibling, went to Boston to live with a different aunt. Fortunately for Helen, their finances were taken over by their grandfather, David Vinyl, who apparently is completely different from the way her parents were. He was considered a savvy businessman. He enjoyed his brandy, as they say. And he actually encouraged Helen in some of her flamboyant behavior and sort of promoted her self-esteem. So He's kind of laying the groundwork for not just her adventurous behavior later on, but also for her business sense. She was a very, very canny businesswoman through most of her life. And that definitely came from her grandfather. And these were buoyed a little bit because she attended uh, two schools that kind of promoted women. One was the Ipswich Female Seminary in Massachusetts, and then something called the Springler Institute in New York City. Uh, and this was what we would now consider a progressive school. Women were, you know, were supposed to stay indoors and not strain themselves. This school had a playground and they provided equipment for athletics. The students were self-governed. No punishments were meted out. Clearly, this is not a school that Helen's parents would have sent her to. This is absolutely uh, her grandfather's doing. Now, at the same time, all of this was within some very strict boundaries. The understanding was that, yes, women would be allowed to excel a little bit at sports, but the long-term aim was obviously that this would make them better wives and better mothers. And you sort of see this dichotomy in Helen's life as she goes forward, because you've got, on the one hand, this exuberant, outgoing personality that just wants to travel and see the world and, and take on great causes. On the other hand, her writings tout the ideals of, you know, being domestic and nurturing her children, although that may come from other reasons. We'll see why in a second. But over time, in terms of her personal decisions, she had a choice between traveling with women or being with other women, as friends, or just being at home with her husband. She took to traveling. She would travel a lot. Now, she also attended something called the Abbott Institute in New York City. And this is where she met another classmate named Emily Dickinson. And they became very, very good friends. Unfortunately, not very many of their letters survive. 
but it's sort of interesting because you have these two almost unlikely personalities, and yet they were still apparently quite close. But by age 20, Helen was considered very, very outgoing and attractive. So it's not surprising that she would very quickly, at a ball given by the governor of New York, she would meet the governor's brother, a Lieutenant Edward Bissell Hunt, again, from another set of prestigious families, and they would marry in Boston in 1852. Now, he was an army engineer, and what that meant was he did not have a permanent place to live, so they were constantly moving about, even as they were raising a family, and that was, I think, sort of a mixed blessing from Helen's standpoint. They would have opposing viewpoints, but Helen sometimes could be persuaded to change, you know, change her opinions on things. Rather famously, she was a staunch abolitionist. She supported the work of Harriet Beecher Stowe, for example. Her husband did not. But when her first child was born, she essentially acquired a slave for $5 a month and somehow rationalized that, okay, under the circumstances, this is not a bad thing. Some of her friends found this willingness to sort of change her opinions a little bit frustrating, but you would see that over the course of her life. That said, uh, like her childhood, this marriage was just, it turned out tragic. They would have two sons. Uh, Sadly, the first one, Murray, died of a brain tumor within his first year of life. In 1863, her husband was working on one of his inventions and involved, I think it was lead and some of the vapors killed him, so he would die. And then her second son would die of diphtheria when he was nine years old in 1865. At that moment, I mean, I think, as you might understand, Helen just went through a really horrible down period. I think now we would say she was deeply, deeply depressed, as you might expect. She moved back to Newport. The family was concerned about her sanity at that point. But somehow, maybe it's because of some of the literary friends that she knew in Newport, it just being somewhere away from where this tragedy happened, she channeled her energies into her writing. And at that point, it just took off. I mean, it, it came from a very, very bad place. But her first paid work appeared in 1865 in the New York Evening Post. And even then you see her business sense because she actually preferred other more prestigious publications like the Atlantic Monthly, but the Post paid more. So that's where she put her work in. And her feeling was always, I'm gonna sell to the highest bidder. And that became kind of one of her guiding lights. She experimented with other things. She did book translations. She definitely did some more juvenile literature and she was writing for magazines aimed at young people. After the Civil War, there were so many writers that were no longer around that people began to sort of worry about, well, how can we get, you know, we need to find good writers. And so she just kept writing and writing and writing and selling and selling and selling. So she turned out something like 371 articles for the New York Independent, one magazine alone. She was writing poetry for the Evening Post. She was writing for The Nation. And she began to write a style that would start to please some of the editors of the more prestigious magazines like The Atlantic. One of the things that was kind of interesting is that she frequently either used a pseudonym or she just left her name off altogether and just signed it no name. And part of this was the recognition of the fact that women writers, even though they were emerging, still kind of were operating under a bit of a cloud. They were considered in some ways to be inferior to male writers, so that if you had a pseudonym, you could get your work published in places you possibly wouldn't be available otherwise. When we look at these two women, both of them came from a a certain element of privilege. I mean, to go to Europe with your family in the 1800s was a big deal. And they both had kind of mentors or at least least the encouragement and the confidence that they could do what they want and not be limited to what was standard for women back then. So talk a little bit about their business savvy. Oh, they were both very, very savvy. As we said, you know, Helen 
uh, Hunt Jackson, you know, was very careful about who she was selling to. She was always writing to the market. She was not uh, an artist up in a garret somewhere saying, I'm a slave for my art. And she was always looking ahead to see what was desirable, what kind of work would they buy. So she was looking at what was being published in the magazines and thinking, how can I do this? Rather famously, Wolsey recommended that Hunt switch publishers and go to the one that she was with because she thought they would they would take better care of her. They were constantly promoting each other's work. If they were putting together an anthology, they'd make sure the other person was included. And obviously, you know, as they cultivated their various literary friends, they would certainly introduce them to each other. So it was, you know, it was tremendously supportive. There was absolutely no competition and they were clearly good friends. Now these women have established themselves. They're in their careers. What's next? Well, unfortunately, in the case of Helen Jackson, she became ill after returning from her trip to Europe with Sarah. This is about 1873-74. There's some question about what's wrong with her, but a homeopathic doctor in Amherst takes a look at her and says, you need to go to a dry climate. And this tends to suggest she might well have had tuberculosis. So she goes out to Colorado, and there she meets another man named William Sharpless Jackson, who's a wealthy banker and railroad executive. He's a little younger than she is, but again, she's just so outgoing and so vivacious. He's absolutely taken with her. And in 1875, they get married and move to Colorado Springs to what was at the time the finest house in Colorado Springs. And actually, it's the first one that Jackson could really say, yes, this is my house, because up until that point, she'd been fairly rootless. They entertained frequently. You know, it was, you know, I think a relatively happy period in Helen's life. But every once in a while, she, you know, she did want to travel. And in 1879, she's well known in America as a writer of children's books and of poetry and of articles that were just sort of everywhere. She was just a well-known literary light and not someone who's drawn to causes. So it's kind of interesting that she goes back east and she hears a lecture by a woman named Suzette LaFleche Tibbles, who's a member of the and I hope I pronounced this right, I believe it's Ponca or Ponce tribe of Nebraska. And she gives this presentation in New York describing the injustices that had been done to her people as well as other Native Americans by the American government. And Ms. Tibbles is a very gifted speaker. She was actually educated at a private school in New Jersey. She was an accomplished writer. She'd been published for several years at that point. And Helen Jackson was just absolutely taken up with, you know, her narrative as well as her cause. And she uh, and Ms. Tibbles became friends. And she began to sort of channel her energy to exposing, you know, as I said, the injustice that had been done to the, the Native Americans. And so what she did is she published in 1879 a nonfiction work called A Century of Dishonor that just documented, you know, she did a tremendous amount of research. And this just laid out very clearly all the broken treaties, all the injustices, all of what we would now probably call genocide that was part of the American government policy. Unfortunately, the book was ignored. It just came out and it kind of went nowhere. But rather than become frustrated with this, she said, well, maybe it'll work better as a work of fiction. Maybe that's how I'll reach my public. So she turns around and takes almost all the same material and in 1884 publishes a work called Ramona. Now, this is aimed at adults. It is not a children's book. And it becomes just a monster bestseller. The plot is, it kind of can't help but remind you of Uncle Tom's Cabin in the sense of the fact that it is a novel about social injustice. 
Uh, it's set in Southern California after the Mexican-American War. Ramona, the title character, is a mixed-race Scottish Native American, and it really sort of documents the discrimination and the travails that she goes through across her life. She will marry, you know, one of the Native Mexican-Americans. This causes consternation both within the Native American and the Mexican community. Neither one of them considers this a good match, and it just goes downhill from there. But as I said, it touches a nerve. This would become a monster bestseller. It would sell over 600,000 copies over the next couple of decades. It would survive well into the 20th century. There'd be five movies made of it. The last one was 1946 with, I think it's Loretta Young in the title role and Donna Michi as her love interest. And I believe a telenovela was actually made in 2000. It also had a sort of unintended side effect. And that is that this was the moment where the railroads were extending into Southern California. And people were so taken with this book, they wanted to go see where the settings were. And it kicked off a travel business inside Southern California itself. So many people wanted to go to see where was this scene? Where was this ranch? Mountains are described and you know some of the natural wonders are described and they just wanted to go out and see it. So it created a kind of second cottage industry out there to this day. There are still high schools and parks that are named after either Jackson or Ramona, the fictional character. So meanwhile, what's going on with Sarah Wolsey? Sarah Wolsey uh, is just pottering along, I guess we would say. She's continuing to write. She's continuing to publish. After her father died, she built a house for herself and her sister in Newport and even though she's very active and very outgoing and she travels to Europe, she travels to visit her sisters, she just keeps producing the books. The Katie books continue to, to sell. Believe it or not, they're still popular in England, even today. But eventually, you know, she lives a long life and, and dies at home. When you look across each timeline, Woolsey does kind of coast through. She doesn't have a lot of adversity. She is really successful. She's really savvy. So it's mm -hmm. a mix of that privilege that kind of gets her in the door, but she also works really hard oh, yeah. um, and really works hard to elevate other people. It's not like she closes the door behind her, but then you look at Helen Hunt Jackson and it's just so much tragedy. It's almost remarkable. I don't know if it was just her natural ability to be vibrant and optimistic and just kind of keep moving forward after so much tragedy. Absolutely. And it doesn't end. I mean, eventually she is diagnosed with cancer. She wants to write a sequel to Ramona, but she can't do it because she just becomes so ill. You know, sadly, she does die at a, at a fairly young, young age, having outlived one of her husbands, two of her children. But at the same time, her literary career was solidified. She was certainly known from Ramona, but also for so much of her other work. We talked a little bit about what the their books were like, their children's books, the ones we would have yep. had in the collection. And how might they compare to children's literature that we have today? Well, you mentioned Judy Bloom. So let's kind of contrast to that. The books that Sarah wrote and that Helen wrote were much lighter in many ways. I mean, they would deal with some real world issues, but they, they certainly weren't as realist. The Katie series are, after all, set at a girls' boarding school. It's a fairly select group of people. You know, right there, you've got, I don't know if I'd say privilege, but they're not trying to be a, a kind of, you know, kitchen sink realist type of book. She knew her audience. It was people that had the luxury to buy books for their daughters, that the daughters had the luxury of being able to read them. 
they were somewhat subversive, but they all fit into the larger context. What's interesting is these two women moved in the circles of Jane Austen and Emily Dickinson, who I would argue almost everyone has heard of. So where's the gap? What happened? I think it's our sensibilities have changed. Clearly, uh, Jackson and Wolsey were writing for their time. They were they knew what their market was. They knew who their audience was, and that audience changed. What's interesting is that Jackson would be such good friends with Emily Dickinson, who in so many ways was almost her total opposite. Jackson's traveling around the world. She's vivacious. She's outgoing. Dickinson stayed in Amherst, and I think Jackson, I believe, is credited with actually having the first Emily Dickinson poem published. It's not even clear if Dickinson gave explicit permission for that. It's sort of ironic that here we are, and I think Dickinson's voice, even though she wasn't really known, you know, until relatively late in her life, is the one that we remember today. Because I think somehow her voice, as quiet as it was, as contained as it was in Amherst, speaks to us in a way that the more prolific works of Jackson and Wolseley don't. Ramona is an amazing novel. It was perfect for its time and place. It reached an audience that at that point had been, to be quite honest, indifferent at best to the plight of the Native American. And Jackson kindled that enthusiasm and that interest. Today we look at it and because we are so much more aware of what happened, we are so much aware of our history, we look at it and we see the flaws, that this was written by someone who is not Native American, who is not Spanish, who kind of came in from the outside. And so it's an outsider's perspective. Again, it served its purpose at the time, but today I think it would be a little more problematic. The Katie series are popular in England. They're still in print. People still love them over there or at least they have an audience over there, let's put it that way. But stories about high-spirited girls at a, you know, at a New England boarding school, there's a market for that, but it's not quite as broad as it was. And there are probably issues that we would want to see discussed today that just weren't even going to be on Sarah's radar just because there are things that would keep the books from being published. You know, what we have to remember is that even though Emily Dickinson was very good friends with Helen Hunt Jackson, there is a comment that's attributed to her where she said Helen had the ability to write, but she didn't have the phosphorescence. You know, every generation rediscovers Jane Austen. Every cent, you know, and people are still rediscovering Emily Dickinson. Because I think in some ways, there those are two absolutely extraordinary voices. If you're going to remember one writer from the early 1800s and one poet from the late 1800s, it's not going to be them. It's going to be Dickinson. It's going to be Austin. What would they be writing today? I think both Sarah and Helen were obviously aware of everything that was going on in the world, and they were probably self-editing. I wonder what it would be like if they had the freedom to write what you can now write within the young adult format. How would someone as high-spirited as you know, as Katie deal with, you know, some of the issues that are here today. It doesn't have to be, you know, a total buzzkill, but it would just perhaps go a little farther and explore certain issues that they just intuitively knew they could not write because they could not get sold. This has been a production of the Nantucket Athenaeum. It was written, narrated, and edited by me, Janet Forrest. Special thanks to Jim Borzilleri for sharing his research, knowledge, and charming radio voice. 
please check the show notes for resources and references for this episode. The Nantucket Athenaeum is located at 1 India Street in Nantucket, Massachusetts. We would love for you to stop by. If you want to know more about the Athenaeum's catalogs, you can visit Jim in the Great Hall. You can find us in the clouds at nantucketathenaeum.org.